Welcome to Main Street Mesa, where we discuss issues around building a more human, people-centered community in Mesa, Arizona, and other communities like it. Hi, I'm Ryan Wozniak. I'm David Crummy. Thank you for joining us on our seventh podcast, but sixth in the book club. Glad you made it this long with us. But first, letters. Letters. What's going on, Ryan? I guess we're getting a little activity. We seem to keep on taking some followers off by not doing enough work or something or not being relevant enough to Mesa. <laughs> uh, but they need their own podcast. <laughs> the, the, the person could benefit from his own podcast. I, f- I feel like he could do a good rant. I think we're slowly building. We're, we're up to over 160 followers now. And uh, if you like and what you hear, we want, we encourage you to share it. and uh, Rate us on thoughts. iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you can rate us. Rate us on the bathroom wall. Ah, yes. Very important. Restroom stalls. For a good time, listen (laughs) to the Main Street Mesa podcast. That's where all the best uh, reviews are are shared. I did want to mention the the showing uh, presented by No Festival Required on June 17th at 7 p.m. Citizen Jane, Battle Cry for the City, Um, and it's a co-sponsorship from a bunch of people, but that includes Rail Mesa and the Urban Phoenix Project. All those people are cool people. And they're gonna have a panel. The panelists will include Will Bruder, Christina Noble, Kate Gallego. Gallego, thank you. And moderator uh, is going to be Tim Igo. Igo, yeah. chair of Downtown Voices Coalition. So, some pretty cool people. Definitely. It'll be a fun time. I'm sure that we'll do a, a rail ride yeah. to get there or something. I don't know when this, uh, if this podcast will drop in time, but Rail Mesa is We awesome. will get it up. We will get it up <laughs> in time. Rail Mesa is also uh, including free ticket giveaway if you give us an awesome quote from Jane Jacobs. All right. Make sure that you send all of your comments to MainStreetMesa at gmail.com. Comment on our Facebook or Tumblr, MainStreetMesa. For the brave, record a short voice message and email it to us for a chance to be featured on the show. I mean, honestly, if you send us a voicemail, we're, we're going to include it, even if it's you ranting about your cat. Yeah. Um, or how we need to be more Mesa focused. Maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> well, with us today, Eileen Bobaden. Back when I knew her, she was just Eileen Bow. She's added a name. She's awesome, and I'd like her to introduce herself. Hi, uh, my name is Eileen Bobaden, and uh, I'm an environmental planner, community planner, and um, I'm looking forward to the podcast. Well, then I guess we should just dive in. We're at steps four and five of the uh, this cool book. This is a continuation of our book club. Step four, let transit work, and step five, protect the protect the pedestrian pages 139 through 188 in the 2013 first paperback edition this is going to be a lot this is a lot of pages a lot of pages yeah but we're going to zoom through it and do our best to cover as much as we can we have a schedule to keep exciting news if you're liking what you hear apparently the chapter of arizona planning also likes uh this idea because they've gone ahead and accepted us as participating in the state chapter conference and we're going to actually do a live recording will be the final recording of this series walkable uh, walkable cities so stay tuned in beautiful scottsdale arizona yeah we're going to travel there. way far i'll take the light scottsdale. rail nope i'll take a train <laughs> i'll ride my bike yeah, if you're dedicated it's august it is late august it's, it's like North Scottsdale. You looking at our cats? 
<laughs> October. Yeah, October? late October, 27th. Yeah, okay. Oh, it is October. Look at that. It's on the calendar. It's fancy. I thought you were looking at the cats. <laughs> well, well, maybe we will we'll ride our bikes. We won't ride our bikes. No, I won't ride my bike. You don't want to ride your bike to North Scottsdale? No. Okay. I have a friend who has a trolley if we need a trolley ride. <laughs> <laughs> Ollie the trolley? Uh, this is the trolley llama. The, the trolley llama? <laughs> <laughs> I like it. That's fabulous. Step four, Definitely. let transit work. Let the transit work. So what do you need? Ten minute headways? We got that all over the place. No, we don't. Where? <laughs> what was your favorite first quote there, David? Uh, for the most part, cities support either driving or everything else. So you're either in a driving city or you're a city that is allows walking and riding bikes and all those kind of things. The idea that good transit relies on walkability and not that transit creates walkability, it's vice versa. In order to have good transit, you have to have walkability. And I think that there's a lot of room for tactical ways to kind of get there, right? So he doesn't really give us marching orders like, okay, we're currently not a very transit-oriented city. We're not very pedestrian-friendly. How do we get to be more so? And, you know, Main Street's a way to get there, but we. How, so how do we start doing things tactically around the light rail, around other corridors to try to get us to a place to where we can kick off and have great walkability, urbanism, around a transit line, around a transit stop. And I think there's good ways of doing it. I think one of the things that I realized in here, because he kind of rails against transit for transit's sake. He's like, the the DART, the Dallas area rapid transit is useless. Don't bother if you're a giant suburban car-oriented place. But he also says it's not too late for Dallas. I was just thinking about that. And I'm like, you know, he talks a lot about the idea of the neighborhood being the, the core and the thing that creates the walkability. I was thinking about downtown Mesa. It's one of the few areas that still has a true, that's at least somewhat walkable, I should say. That you meets know? his definition of, of neighborhood, right? And I was trying to think of what other areas in the valley, the whole valley, have that same neighborhood feel that if you were to connect it to transit whatever system that was and let's see melrose in downtown phoenix the melrose district which mm -hmm. is attached to a couple historic neighborhoods it's got some cool things going on there central avenue roosevelt road you know like downtown tempe we've got <laughs> uh, yeah mill ave even though that's there's not a whole it's lot of housing there. College centric. Yeah. There's a lot more housing. Yeah, it's um, growing. City of Tempe just issued an RFP for a massive TOD study cool. for the streetcar, which we'll get to. To look at that and affordable housing and infrastructure and all that, it's like four hundred thousand dollar grant that's going out downtown Mesa. And what comes to mind is that project that recently was approved on at the corner of Dobson and Maine where they, the city of Mesa did it under the guise of the sustainable development uh, portion of their zoning code. So and the city then, of Mesa didn't do anything. Okay, city of Mesa guided it through their... The zoning code allowed for it, okay? So there's some public involvement and in, in actually setting the table to allow for a sustainable development, quote-unquote. Um, but then it came in competition with what Valley Metro wanted for parking 
at that location, right? And FTA, yeah, the Federal Transit Authority. And what that that comes in direct conflict with some of the guidance provided in previous sections and this section is about the more convenient you make it for people to have cars, that's the easier choice. Like, you got to choke them out a little bit. I think my takeaway is that it's not too late for us. You know, he was, he's saying that it may be too late for Dallas or areas of Dallas, but I don't feel that that's true here. Oh, I don't think so at all either. But uh, I thought it was interesting that he said, you know, at one point that um, you need some vacant lots and you need some empty land to allow around transit to allow for development basically to occur around these these type of areas but then you know he also mentioned how um, a lot of people put their you know light rails through areas where it's uh maybe not it's more um uh you know vacant land it's land that they are able to afford it's cheaper land right. than maybe in some other areas where maybe people would like to see the light rail be installed so um yeah, it seems like, you know, you kind of just have to work within the context of each individual city and look at it um, specifically because in Tempe, there is there might not be as many vacant lots left, but there's still room for people to develop up. And I know we've definitely seen a lot of a lot of apartment complexes being developed lately, um, even closer down to some of the industrial areas. They're starting to add some apartments. Um, mm -hmm. So I definitely can see where um, you know, Tempe would benefit from from having some, you know, additional expansion of their uh, light rail or streetcar system. It's how you use those vacant lots too. As as a, I think a transit node is is starting to prove itself. Like that's where the I think the tactical or lean urbanism, as these uh, buzzwords are kind of becoming more known. Don't talk to me about lean urbanism. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, some of the buzzwords end up getting to be to the point where we don't know what we're talking about anymore or they're just kind of glossed That's over. another issue. Uh, under another That's an entire podcast, yeah. Lean Urbanism. So, and Andres Duaney's obsession <laughs> with returning us to 1860 America. But, you know, so coming from New York recently, there was some really good sessions on how you drive demand by taking lean or tactical incremental steps towards proving that there's a demand that the developer or the development community hasn't quite bought into yet. Like So rather than just be focused on what the supply of housing is and what the current demand or the current attraction of an area is, how do you actually create a buzz in an area, a placemaking? And, he, and uh, I think that um, this section, he talks about how placemaking is a uh, value creation tool, right? So, uh, and that kind of ties in to what I, uh, uh, some of the takeaways out of those sessions that I saw in New York. Well, I think that you're, you're absolutely right. Part of that is that transit's not the only solution. It has to come hand in hand with new zoning requirements. So when light rail came through Tempe in 2007, 2008, that came hand in hand with a TOD overlay district that didn't exist in Mesa. So Mesa created the form-based code, but only for about three square miles around the downtown. Most of the light rail area in Mesa is not rezoned, which is why, you know, at Dobson and Maine, they've had to go back through and at significant expense, go through and do what we should have done as 
a government or people is rezone that area to be supportive of transit. Yeah. Light rail happened, was opened right at the beginning of the, the downturn, right at the beginning of the Great Recession here in the valley and just in the four or five years after that we saw about eight billion dollars of investment along light rail in real estate development in an otherwise fragile fragile disastrous not interested market where people were shutting down their companies yeah. you know light rail when it was done right created a lot of stimulation light rail ended at sycamore station right where this development was what's the zoning in that area boring 20 unit to an acre, mm -hmm. um, 1970s style suburban zoning. Had that zoning been in place 10 years ago when Light Rail was there, would we be looking at a different story? I don't know. I, I really do appreciate the, the neighborhood um, definition because it's. I think that would challenge a lot of suburban thinking about what a neighborhood is. I have plenty of practical experience in being a planner in a city that talks about neighborhoods as uh, subdivisions that developers uh, are part of, right? So Yeah, his, his idea, his statement that most urban communities don't have neighborhoods right. was jarring, actually. I will just go here, and he says, uh, what is a neighborhood? Neighborhood, it's something that has uh, local density, neighborhood structure. So neighborhood structure refers to the presence or absence of real neighborhoods, which are technically defined as being compact, diverse, and walkable. It has a center, an edge, and contains a wide variety of activities in close proximity with an armature of pedestrian-friendly streets and public armature. spaces. It's a good word, armature. It is. Although, <laughs> although I don't within know reach. what... <laughs> I, think, I think it means like, you know, it's like within reach, you know, it doesn't... Ar armature is uh, what you hang things on. And so in, in the art circles, armature is what you hang art on. So mm -hmm. a piece of public art goes on an armature that holds it. So, you know, the armature is what holds the structure of the neighborhood, mm -hmm. in my interpretation. Good, I don't know. Good metaphor, maybe. But it's but, a big one. Yeah, it's, it's a big difference between what we see developer-driven subdivision-type, quote-unquote, neighborhoods looking like, right? It's Which are monocultures. Parks and single-family homes and... Uh, maybe a trail connection to try to connect everything so that you know like we, we have good intentions like we make sure that park spaces are within a quarter mile distance from a home or whatever or less it doesn't meet the national trust for public Eight, lands 800 feet uh so anyway like but it's not enough like you know access to a park or walkable access to a park or walkable access to picnic tables and quote-unquote community center that may not really be thriving because there's just not enough people there to drive it um, is only is only doing so much I also feel like the connections to get to those places if you're looking at a quarter mile and you're just walking straight and you have no mm -hmm. nothing visual to look at that's interesting in between you're not going to want to walk it I mean I think something that we have here in Phoenix that is is something that we could you know, try to do would be to kind of expand our pedestrian alleys, um, mm. add pedestrian. So in the, some of these large blocks that we have, break them up where you can, you know, and add, um, add spaces so the pedestrians maybe have their own, you know, space to walk down. You can make it lighted, you can, you know, add, add art to it and make it interesting, but then at least it gives them um, a place to feel safe, but also a connection point, it gives them a, a place to turn and, and to, to do something 
essentially different to have a different route to not always have the same route to where they're going. Yeah, Yeah, block length is really important. I know that in downtown Phoenix, the Urban Phoenix Project, and before them, Thunderdome, which is what they were called before they changed their name, Thunderdome, such an awesome name. They actually had to fight to retain alleys that developers were coming in and trying to actually recreate super blocks, which was frustrating that that fight had to happen, but thankful to those people that they actually fought that and have retained some of the alleys that are being tried to lost. Downtown Mesa, we have our beautiful 660 foot by 660 foot block size um and part of that just beyond what he recommends is the maximum size right the 600 by 600 right and but we've spent a lot of time um actually taking down buildings in the middle of those blocks to try and create a more walkable space so i think that that's Mm -hmm. that's a benefit and we just need to make sure that that continues to exist because there's already talk the city's like well it's not a right-of-way it's just private property and i'm like it's a right-of-way treat it as such create an easement it's not that hard you know so it can really make people feel comfortable, I think, to be in a place where it's also um, the size of the road or the street is um, more condensed as opposed to a street that has seven, eight lanes. And It's just exhausting. Let's be real here. It looks exhausting to cross and it looks exhausting for... Um, you know, to, to try to walk a block that's so far. And it's also really tiring for pedestrians to cross the street or to, to walk all the way to a stoplight here in, in Phoenix yeah. to make the, to cross the street instead of just jaywalking, you know? And that's where I know we have a lot of accidents that happen um, and they're completely, you know, avoidable. I know, I know Gilbert was doing some mid-block crossings a few years ago to help um, uh, people when they were riding along some of the canal paths to be able to actually cross the street to be able to push a button, actually be able to cross the street more safely. So, the big button. Yeah, so mid-block crossings, <laughs> I thought were kind of interesting. I hadn't heard about them too much before, but I think, you know, breaking it up into smaller pieces is, uh, you know, definitely um, super helpful for the pedestrian. Yeah, it's it's you exhausting. I see miserable. <laughs> well, and I think so much of that is trying to fix, put a Band-Aid on a big problem, which is, you know, having a mid-block crossing at a place where you have to cross six lanes of traffic is not safe. You know, the best hawk or mid-block crossing or pedestrian activated cross sign is still not a safe solution because you have a 45 mile an hour speed limit and things like that. Downtown Chandler has, they've added some hawks and that makes a lot more sense because they narrowed the road to one lane. Downtown Mesa, they've narrowed the road to one lane. Mill Avenue, they have the road narrowed to one lane. All those places and the speed limit is 25 miles an hour, maybe 30, which, and with, but with street trees and on-street parking and other things that create a little bit more of a sense of uncertainty to make the street slower and thus safer and i think all those things are are great you know i mean i would like to see them you know um decrease some of those travel lanes and and make them into you know um you know expanded sidewalks and and bike lanes but the but the reality is is that if you don't do the mid-block crossing it's going to stay the way that it was and oh right it's just a symptom of a of the past 30 years of sprawl my hope is that eventually it you know when people see that and now they can actually cross safely because when i did go out there before they had them installed there were i saw 
you know, 20 plus people using the path and trying to cross a road that was six lanes wide. And it was uh, extremely unsafe. And there was, there, you know, I mean, they had like orange vests on just like the rest of the, the personnel <laughs> who were there uh, working on the project. So um, I think, you know, small solutions here, there, um, you know, can help. Definitely not, definitely not the full solution. Yeah, but the other part of this is focusing on places where the sense of neighborhood has already started, or at least a component of it is there. You know, true suburban uh, Chandler, Gilbert, or East Mesa, the cost, the sheer cost of being able to make it a place that transit could work is beyond what we have. But we have places like basically all of Mesa that was built before the 70s has that opportunity to be connected at a much more affordable rate and these are the places that need reinvestment anyway yeah. and so that allows us to like if we're looking at that you know I'm not saying that we just cut them off and ship ship those areas off but they're doing fine right now but the places where we can reinvest now are places like downtown Mesa like the transit corridor where we already have a couple components ahead of everything else so let's focus there to make sure that we can take that to the next level and create a place honestly that used to be there you know, go back to Mesa in the 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s, that's what existed. And then we fixed that problem by widening all of our roads in the 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s, building freeways and all that. So we can actually go back and, and fix the problem. Yeah, um, Mesa's got a bit of a, an advantage in the wide roads uh, category in some select uh, locations because Mesa, unlike a lot of other East Valley suburbs has not given up on the half mile grid. And so those half miles, the the extensions, the long moors, those are great opportunities, I think, uh, to uh, bring in that neighborhood scale commercial. Oh, I'm really excited, especially for the Gilbert Road extension of light rail. Um, those, one, they've learned a lot of lessons and I'm very sad because it's going, the Gilbert Road extension is gonna get a much better development out of this work, they're putting a lot more art, a lot more landscape, a lot more uh, smart street design in that extension that we didn't get between the Sycamore. Sycamore and downtown Mesa. Downtown Mesa had a lot going for it, and that's where a lot of the energy was, but you know, where my house was, almost cool, didn't get that so much. Got a couple of trees. Yeah. But Gilbert Road, you know, like the mid-block crossings, we're going to have the very first um, in Arizona a roundabout with a train going through the middle of it, hmm. which is actually going to be kind of cool. Um, that's from that Salt Lake City. Surprise. But it's a cool solution that increases the speed of the train, the speed of cars driving on Main Street, or not speed, efficiency. Hmm. And um, capacity. without impacting the north-south connection either for people walking or people driving or riding their bikes so i'm excited to see that me too um i definitely like to hear about the increased like street art and um you know making it um interesting for the pedestrian i feel like that that can get missed sometimes and um i think we just need to look for all opportunities that we can to kind of make it a unique and inviting atmosphere for people talking about unique and inviting atmosphere one of the things that he talks about is like the components of transit that are important is urbanity and clarity and frequency and pleasure and this goes back to pleasure. pleasure. And he was talking about the idea of like people just enjoying like looking out the window of the train as they're traveling and just experiencing the place. And that just reminds me of how 
annoying it is that we cover up our windows with ads and it makes it really hard to hmm. look out from your train car. I would 100% agree. And it drives me nuts. I don't like how it looks on the outside either. I don't mind advertisement, yeah. but I want to see in the train and I want to see out from the train. Yeah. And this is where we encourage our visitors to get off at Sky Harbor and come to downtown Phoenix, come to Tempe, come to downtown Mesa. Inside, and you can look at a little holes the size of pencil erasers. And if you squint in your eyes right, you can see out. It might help with the solar load though in August. It doesn't. The, our trains are built. They have uh, oversized air conditioners. Our air conditioners are bigger than the air conditioners they use in the light rail in Dubai. We have a reflective coating on all of our trains. These things are built for the desert. It's incredible. Yeah. I was in St. Paul, and their light rail system had the same wraps as in the ads and things, except they had a sliver cutout right in the middle where your head is mm -hmm. for all the ads so you could see out. There's a good compromise right there. And I'm like, there you go. You get your... It just drives me nuts that you can't see out from our mm -hmm. train cars. They can design around that. Well, also, if we're going to spend all this money on, you know, public funding, taxes, my tax dollars are going to helping with the light rail, at least some of them. Uh, you know, mostly it's by federal, federal tax say, And most of it goes towards freeways um, anyway. But. but regardless, I'm sure there's some amount of state in there. And, you know, when all these people have paid, including federal, even federal tax dollars, you know, why do we need to, why do we need to have ads on there? I mean, I guess I feel like, you know, if we've already paid for it, then why, why? Well, it's just operations and, operations and maintenance. Yeah. But, yeah. but I, you know, I don't necessarily dislike advertising. I mean, Honestly, at this rate, we're subsidizing freeways way more than we are transit, but which doesn't pay for itself. That's a different chapter. It's the, to come in. <laughs> it's the way that it looks. It's the way that it's perceived. Well, and it's a community From outside asset, visitors right? as well. We don't wrap. Know? We don't wrap our playgrounds in ads oh. yet. <laughs> uh oh. <laughs> yeah, I, did I let that idea just, out? I'm gonna start. Developing slides that have toy advertisements on them. <laughs> yeah, it could work. Um, so, real quick before we move on to the safe walk, I streetcars, streetcars, and bus rapid transit. He says that he hasn't visited or he hasn't worked for a city that hasn't considered a streetcar, right? Like so, here we are in Tempe, considering a streetcar tonight as we speak. Not considering, they're getting one. They're getting one. Okay, <laughs> yeah, it's on the agenda tonight. It's the first happening. public meeting, Tempe Transportation Center, yeah. Yeah. And it's been realigned at least two times. <laughs> yep. And then, then Mesa's in the loop, too. Maybe, yep. Yeah, Fiesta District is hitting the news, you know, thinking about uh, funding for that. So what, what does he call it? Toy Transit? So how, how much is this is just like, it's cuter than a bus, it's it's cooler than a bus, so therefore it's better than a bus. And I understand that we have to design for human behavior, but dang it, why do we have to be so dumb? It just seems <laughs> expensive. But I really like the idea that it's a people accelerator, that comment, mm -hmm. that yeah, you have to have the people already mm -hmm. for a streetcar to be effective. Like okay. the average speed of a streetcar is between three and five miles an hour um, the average speed of an american walking is three miles an hour so three and a half two and a half you know <laughs> i don't know we're getting fatter we're getting he slower talk, he talks about it actually yeah, he talks yeah. About it. <laughs> he's saying that it, it, the standard for 
uh, how fast Americans have walked. It's gone from four to three and a half, and that must be because we're fatter. Is it four to three and a half, or yep. is it three to two and a half? Nah, but, you know, I talked to somebody briefly, and they said that they haven't been on a bus in the area, in the Phoenix metro area, but they have been on the light rail. Mm-hmm. And they mm-hmm. sounded like they would be more willing to get on something that's a bit more fixed. Easy, it's one line, you know, it's it's comfortable, you know that you're not gonna, um, I don't know, I mean, it, it, you know, people might feel the same way with buses when they get more used to it and more used to riding the buses, but I think with the trolley or the streetcar just being one, you Call know. Call trolley. <laughs> just being one line, it's a little bit, um, you know, just more comfortable and, and easier for the pedestrian to feel, you know, safe. And also there's not as So with the bus routes, there's so many. I think people can sometimes mm-hmm. get overwhelmed. You have to get off at this one, on on this one. And um, I, I, I think also for out-of-town guests, you know, it might be something that they might be willing to try, whereas they might not be, you know, willing on the, on the bus. But also we have ASU here, right. which is huge, and that's obviously where a lot of the federal funding came from for the – Right, because of the density. It would be nice if ASU was helping to pay for it. You know, one of the things that I think about is, number one, the majority of light rail riders are bus riders. The majority of people who ride the light rail get to light rail on the bus, transfer to light rail, or vice versa. Because our network, you know, we have one east-west light rail system, and to get to light rail, you usually have to get there somehow. And if you don't live close enough to walk, and the majority of the people that utilize our bus system are doing it because of cost efficiencies, it's cheaper, or they can't afford a car, or the upkeep of a car. And so, you know, that connects, so the majority of people that ride light rail are bus riders, so encouraging that. And Tempe has an incredible bus feeder system. You know, the Orbit system mm-hmm. is, uh, I wish everybody had that. That is amazing. It goes into goes against, every neighborhood. It goes against one of his rules for transit, right? Not to do a loop, but to keep it linear. But I don't know, local circulators might be a, a, a decent rule. And is there a better way to do it? Maybe. So the only, I wish they would expand a I think they are expanding further south, right? Where is the Saturn Loop going? Do you yeah, know? I don't know. I don't think it goes further south it's, than the 60. stops at so, the US 60 in my brain, so I don't know what happens south of 60. So I, the one thing I can say about, about that is that it seems to me like the Orbit really um, provides services for free to a lot of students that are possibly from out of state, right? Mm-hmm. So there's not a whole lot there's residents in South Tempe or areas that may not be getting the same benefits. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's sad, you know, to consider that here we have, you know, students that, um, might not really be contributing to the just cash money. Um, you know, as much they don't use taxes. They don't don't use our facilities, but they give us money. So I just, uh, yeah, so anyways, it's just something to consider because I know Tempe, this is a, a year or two ago, they were reducing some bus routes mm-hmm. um, and some portions that maybe weren't as heavily used, but yet the people who were using them really needed, needed them. them. And so it was just sad that there seemed to be such a great network for like North Tempe here around like Mill Avenue where there's a lot of students, mm-hmm. you know, but what about the rest of Tempe? So I just want to think about them as well. Um, when I was at Virginia Tech, they had um, we paid like $75 a semester and we didn't have a choice it was included in our tuition and it was great because we could take the bus system for free 
And so I wish that ASU would implement something along those lines. They I do. Don't, they, they have like a discounted it's rate. Yeah, it's, it's not 80 required bucks. though. It's 80 bucks. No, it's not required. It's 80 bucks a semester to get a, a semester long bus pass or at all least through, it with was. With all Valley Metro? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think the requirement part was pretty good because then <laughs> you do get a lot more funding. And well, you don't have to pay 400 bucks a semester for a uh, parking pass. Yeah, that's great. Uh, great incentive. And that's true. If students are already paying for the fee, you know, then they might think, oh well, you know, maybe maybe I will take take the bus. Hey, hey it's free, you mm -hmm. know. And they and sometimes it's also looking into that kind of stuff. I don't know how much students have really looked into. You know, look into it too much. Oh, I, I know it was on my mind. Yeah. I, I used it when I was at ASU. Uh, I took the light rail to it because I didn't want to park anywhere near yeah. Tempe. And the and yeah, I just buy. I think the circular does a really great job at also controlling for housing costs around the campus too, because it helps spread the student population. Yes. Yeah, uh, further out a little bit, you know, so it's not so. Mm. Uh, this it increases the supply for this huge demand and, and demand is ever increasing like ASU is not shrinking anytime they really increased enrollment a lot recently no, it, it's huge and the student you know one of the issues you know we worked along the Apache corridor which is Main Street um, and one of the issues with the neighborhoods there the historic neighborhoods there is that they're seeing more and more investment homes that end up being leased to students and less and less family homes which is driving the price up significantly so the people that would uh, could afford to live there and raise a family there can't afford it anymore because the student market has pushed that so high sure. and you know the Apache corridor or North Tempe is also the lowest income area of Tempe and so that whole area sort of sort of like East North Tempe Northeast Tempe whatever we want to call it that sort of mimics West Mesa there's a lot of similarity we just lose a lot of students when we cross the canal. The impact of students I don't think can be underestimated either because you know they're able to pay a lot of money even though they don't technically have income and how do you how do you control that and still keep a community you know like Mill Avenue is pretty much a student haven now there's not a lot that attracts me as a old person. Um, <laughs> so old. So old. And it, you know, I mean, uh, we lost, there's not as many local places there. So it's the same thing you can get anywhere else. We, they got a Postinos, they're done. Um, and if for guys, an old man like you, you're not a I don't want to. I'm, I'm not in the um, student age group anymore, I guess, at least not the undergraduate level. Mm -hmm. But um, I live um, just about a mile and a half west of Mill Avenue. And and I like it because it is bikeable and walkable and there's but there are also great neighborhoods here to the south, oh, south yeah. of the university that are so fun to the bike Maple through Ash, and save. Farmer Wilson. And it's because the streets don't go straight, you know. They have the um what would you call that? So it comes to a stop and then you have to turn right mm -hmm. or left. The and dogs then, that Yeah. Which are illegal, which we learned oh, in yeah, the book yeah, too. Yeah, so those are fantastic because you don't have as many drivers, you know, coming and using side streets because it does it's slow and it takes a little bit longer. So for bikers it's it's very safe um, going through those neighborhoods and and so um, No, the neighborhoods around Mill mm -hmm. Avenue, the at least west that have the historic neighborhoods mm -hmm. are gorgeous. There's slowly a roundabouts in we're the slowly areas. losing them to new development where investors will buy up a few parcels and put them up but that's because Tempe upzoned them in the 80s 
Well, and it's tough as urban planners, we're supposed to like increased density, right? I right. mean, but density done right, right? Yeah. Because yeah. this is in the right location so that it doesn't drive more cars on the road, right? You need the great transit to complement the density. Otherwise, all you're doing is clogging up the roads. And I don't know, maybe that's how transit ends up becoming popular. Um, well, but Tempe has transit. Tempe has a great bike network um, and getting better with the. What's the spoken wheel? I don't know. Remember the the term they use for their hmm. for their bike system, but they're investing heavily in that. Some credible traffic calming systems. I would love to see that in Mesa. Just the traffic calming and the neighborhood art yep. component. Mm -hmm. That in Mesa would make a bigger difference in our neighborhood and show a true interest and dedication to preserving and improving our neighborhoods than probably Permanence. anything else. Permanence. You know what I wonder how how what kind of good conversations we could have with different artists to see you know what opportunities they see and kind of start those conversations between the city and artists and then you know cooperative agreements where you know some people might be willing to volunteer some time. Um, I take a ceramics class with the city of Tempe and uh, they wanted to do like a mosaic wall or they've just had some other ideas and they've um, they've asked for volunteers to kind of help step in and they've definitely had you know a good amount of people sign up for that so it's just about asking and kind of creating those conversations and david yeah. should toot his own horn a little bit here about uh bringing helping bring art space to mesa it's not in the book uh. <laughs> <laughs> i'm i'm excited about that um but you know i mean what you're talking about is creative placemaking um which is getting more and more traction one of the issues with that is a, a well a lot of issues that's a, it's a that's another episode a lot of things to talk about. AKA it. land appreciation tools. Right, tool, <laughs> tools to create to increase gentrification and displacement. But you know, some of it is when you work with artists, they feel very unappreciated because no one wants to pay artists. They always want artists to do things for free. Um, but there are some fascinating things. So Minneapolis, as part of their one Minneapolis program, they actually had an ar artist in residence in the city itself. So the planning department, they actually hired an artist to come and like, planners, you're doing an outreach component to this community. We're going to plop an artist in right. your department and they're going to help you better reach the community. Right, through creative outreach and creative processes and the conversations, right? Like it was more visually intensive or just creative uh, conversations. And, just, and some of the work they did was incredible. So they were working in a lot of minority neighborhoods and historically disenfranchised neighborhoods that didn't like the city, that the city had already done them wrong so many different ways. And but by having an artist allowed to say, like, eh, we're not that old city anymore. We're going to try and grease these wheels. And, if, and the artist got to be the intermediary to translate the planneries to the community. And then the community yeah. translate that distrust from of government from the community back to the city and say, hey, you can't do it like you used to do it because They've already had that done. I know you weren't working here then, but still the same thing. You can't come and steamroll these mm -hmm. these people, these communities. They're I done. Think art installments are a simple way to kind of show like an investment in permanence, right? So well, it's not about, about not necessarily about permanence. It's about process with yeah, creative placemaking. Yeah, with what you're talking about, right? But I'm talking about just like from the outsider's perspective, like. 
do I want to go move to this neighborhood, right? Like in a place where you're trying to attract more people, uh, mm -hmm. new people into an area, right? They, they may have not been part of that process, but the, the sign that things are, are happening in an area are, are valuable. And it, I mean, it doesn't cost a whole lot. Uh, I just want to touch on the city of Tucson's infrastructure art is oh, is fantastic yes. um i really you know it's it's interesting it's unique uh, i can think of this one structure that's um it's kind of like a metal circle and it has like some cool um elements to it it but then um and then at night it lights up and it's all different colors mm -hmm. so also that that idea of adding some led Lighting. lighting and and making things um you know an art piece as well um when i had worked on planning a park we had added a splash pad and so but instead of making it something where there's like all these um you know plastic or metal structures we had just kept it really simple now this is just a plan but we did like led lighting on the below it so that it has that um mm -hmm. the okay. lights that come up i think um City Center in Phoenix has, yeah. has something very similar to this now. So it's not just, you know, something for, for kids five and under. Sure. It's something for all ages. And yeah. I think that does a place like Phoenix and Mesa so, uh, so much justice because it's hot during the day, right? Like we're, we just came out of 106 degree weather right now. And it's going to be, feel much more comfortable at 10 o'clock tonight and if you can extend the day for people with a little bit of cool lighting and stuff and that, that reflects off art and cool things then it's going to make its place more inviting in a during an inviting temperature so there's two things that i want to touch on that we started started one is displacement and gentrification because we just touched on that with our art conversation but the other thing i want to talk about is the night um, Melbourne, Australia, our, our twins from the south, all of Australia is America's twin. Um, they so much, same attitude, just different. Um, but Melbourne, they went from, they have very hot, a lot more humid than it is here, but their summers are miserable. No one was going outside, but then they're like, hey, we need to do stuff at night. So they started doing night markets and utilizing the alleys and they transformed what was in the 80s and 90s, uh, bombed out, no one lived there, uh, emptied out downtown into the cool place where people want to be. And, you know, there's lots of people back living in downtown Melbourne with lots of cool stuff to do at night in the summer. And so summer is when Melbourne comes alive. And that's it's just a muggier Phoenix, um, you know? I love that, that idea, though, of getting, you know, more events happening at night. Um, in Marrakesh, in Morocco, they actually, um, everybody sleeps during the day, and they Siesta. do everything at night. I swear, um, yeah, it's like you sleep during the day, and then I guess, I'm not sure exactly what time, but it's kind of starting in the afternoon. Everybody kind of gets up and goes work and does their thing and the market is much it's all open at night you know there's lights and, and that's everything. where commerce happens it's a big and square and there's um shops all you know around on the bottom and then there's uh restaurants where you can sit on a patio and look over the square um so but yeah everything goes on at night so i just thought that was interesting you mentioned that oh it's it's very good and zip cars are available at night <laughs> trying to just move this on. This book's just old. We don't have zip cars anymore. We have Uber. Right. Well, zip cars were replaced by Uber. Car sharing, I think, is an interesting thing to help uh, the those who are thinking about ditching a car to be marginal, who are marginally interested in ditching their car, to test out that lifestyle. So, um, 
I know in my time at uh, in Portland, they had like even the tiny little uh, versions of car to go, which are, is a car sharing thing, and everybody's driving around in these smart cars, car to go. So there's an example of where it's working. And so yeah, I think it's a great it's a great tool. I don't know if it's completely been killed off by Uber and Lyft, but uh, I do one. You know, he doesn't mention Uber and Lyft. No. Well, because it didn't exist. Yes, yeah, so, just a little while ago. Does Zipcar have trucks? I was yep. just see a little Zipcar. Okay. Yeah, so like, so I don't I, think I it's Tempe or Phoenix. I was but. thinking though, yeah. So there, there is one uh, at ASU because I've I've looked at it, you know, like so. The, the cost differential between going to U-Haul for a truck or if you just need a little thing to pick up, right, like maybe a Zipcar truck would work. And so there there are like at least SUVs and trucks somewhere around ASU, but there are not many. And so the, the car sharing has not taken off here, even though around ASU is probably the most walkable area in East Valley. Um, but it's hasn't seemed to take taken too much here. So we have about 10 minutes left okay. to talk about the last 40 pages. <laughs> I think we can extend another 10 minutes. I'm going to give a 10-minute extension. <laughs> <laughs> so magnanimous. <laughs> so this is by, basically by talking time, about how our streets are built, built to kill people. Again, we're talking about it. Yeah. Um, lane widths alone attribute 900 additional deaths that which was like what that lanes so before you think that maybe ADOT doesn't uh, qualify for this uh, they certainly do they certainly are qualified to make lanes too fat I've seen it myself <laughs> seen it myself with the the standard 12-foot lane they won't even put in bike lanes that are striped and properly marked unless the city is willing to pitch in to make that happen so I only know of 10-foot lanes in one place that's Main Street in downtown Mesa. It's the only place I know that has a 10-foot lane. My neighborhood, where we have striped lanes on one of our neighborhood collector streets. What, what is it? 12-foot lanes? Ooh. And that was down from their standard of 14-foot hey. lanes for a 25-mile-an-hour speed limit. Yuck. I wonder if ADOC could do any, like, they should do some tests. They should, you know, let's do a sample, basically, of... Um, you know, trying to restripe some roads and make them a little bit more narrow and then test yeah. out and see how they work out. But um, where, where does ADOT have jurisdiction? There's, so there's Steak. a lot of highways that are running at 55, 65 miles per hour. No, I mean, I we mean, want to keep those in 12-foot lanes. I don't think that there's any. I'm talking there. about in but neighborhoods, like in, in, in walkable in, places. In communities. Where is ADOT? The city of Maricopa is But even example. like... Ah, all right, so, so City of Maricopa, do you have a giant ADOT highway going right through the middle of your downtown? State Route 347. So, um, and it's, it's... What's the speed limit? 35. What's what's the actual speed of people driving down that road? As fast as they can go from red light to red light. <laughs> <laughs> how wide's the, how wide's the uh, sidewalk? Uh, the sidewalks. Where are they available? Six incomplete. Feet. Yeah, and in, incomplete what, network. What spacing, what protection do you have between the 40 50 mile an hour traffic and human beings on the sidewalk uh some zero inches <laughs> unless you count the curb width so one of the <laughs> things that i actually really want to touch base on um and this here, is this is where we can pull in eileen to talk a little bit about her experience in designing sidewalks along uh state routes yeah that was one of my first projects was down in the um 
in Maricopa doing the uh, oh, yeah? sidewalk project down there. And uh, unfortunately, due to like irrigation or something, there was like a swale yeah and so they would have had to like fill it in and relocate things which which actually wouldn't have been half bad to um allow for a buffer so i think that buffer is is extremely important about making pedestrians you know feel safe whether it be you know people who are biking walking park cars um, whatever parks cars serve as a great barrier um trees serve as a great barrier i mean it's it's about it also creates a comfortable space um but can you have how much of a buffer do you need if you have a speed limit around 45 miles an hour? I mean, I would personally like at least an eight-foot buffer. I mean, in order for well, my bike- me to be comfortable with my eight-year-old riding, mm-hmm. which we should always measure oh, the success bike. success of if for a riding bike or my eight-year-old walking to school, how, at what point do I feel safe with them walking on a 45-mile-an-hour street? I don't know if 45-mile-an-hour streets feel comfortable unless you some crazy amount of like good things happening between the sidewalk and this the the route i mean i feel even like three feet if four feet if it's three feet even because if that's all you can do sometimes um you know just to have something there that 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 serves that barrier Mm -hmm. um like just uh on university here in uh tempe it's there's there's really no barrier there's no barrier the bike lane is on the road and it's 40 miles an hour mm-hmm. and people drive much faster so but on um, so let's just compare so we're we're recording here at university and basically mill and if we think about mill avenue we have a ton of we have wide sidewalks one one lane 25 mile an hour speed limit i think tons of sidewalk cafes, a lot of economic activity going on, especially if we consider that per square foot. And then we just go around the corner, we have University, we have 40 mile an hour speed limit, I think. No sidewalk cafes, not a lot of economic activity happening along the street. Um, we do have a bike lane, but it's really a transit corridor. It's not a commercial place. It's not a place where things happen. It all happens off that street. And so just that differentiation the speed limit um you know if we if we're just trying to think about which place is a better place to walk and hang out the design of the street and the design of the structure indicates how the private development you know i can't come and build a cafe and face out onto university because the street noise is going to be so high yeah i'm glad that you brought up street noise because that i think is one of those environmental measures that don't always get considered by the the public uh, very much and I've actually, so we have a bike ped design project going on in Maricopa that I'm managing. And as part of it, the conversation that I was having with the consultants, I was recording with my phone to demonstrate how loud you have to talk to one another <laughs> in order to have a conversation on that sidewalk. And this is an intersection where cars aren't going all that fast. It's 40 miles an hour, 35 miles an hour. But there's a lot of lanes. Which we know is death. Of, yeah. And, it's too and the, fast. And the yeah the, for walkable areas, the sidewalks right on the curb and everything. So when I when we're talking about an alternative for where people are going to feel comfortable as pedestrians and bicyclists, that's one of the determining factors of getting off of the state route for an alternative route, uh, so that we're not adjacent to that high volume of traffic because it's already been determined politically that that's going to stay high volume high. Uh, you know speed traffic so, so how do we use that as the feeder yeah. for 
to turn off a walkable, bring, bring a, a true neighborhood, a place yeah. where you can do that. Yeah, you can turn, you can you can make the turn onto another street, slow it down, and then create that cool uh, network off of the heavy traveled highway. That's that's my take. I completely understand there are roads that are you know higher higher speed limits, and that that's necessary for for movement of um, goods and services, but. Um, but I, I do think it's interesting that, um, for example, there was a fire department up in Portland, and they were saying that when the roads are more narrow, they, they have smaller trucks. Mm -hmm. But, you know, overall, like, because that's one of the things is sometimes fire departments will be like, no, you know, we need to have this wide of a turning radius because our, mm -hmm. because our truck is 500 feet long or between, whatever, between whatever it might trash. be. Yeah. And so, but then when you look at it, it's actually, it causes more accidents to have the mm -hmm. roads be that wide. So was that, even was though, that last episode that or? we talked about that a few episodes ago about yeah. the lumbering, uh, well, deal. and about literally we're designing streets that kill more people requiring more because <laughs> of more because fire and tra traffic require wide streets it makes them more dangerous which means we need more fire and ambulance so that's interesting you know we, i guess we really need to start talking to all the folks who who are making the standards out there and who are saying that you know they they need this wide of a of a turning radius or whatever it might be and kind of really asking them why and then explaining and showing them the numbers behind it but um yeah i would really just like to you know challenge ADOT to, to look at some, some road diets, at least well, as a sample to see how it works. Not just ADOT, but all of our municipalities yep. here in the Valley, because ADOT doesn't control Main Street. ADOT mm -hmm. doesn't control Southern Avenue. Um, I, I really I really want, after reading this chapter, I really want to see some data on Southern Avenue. I bet you there are more people driving on Southern Avenue now that it's four lanes than it was when there were six lanes ten yeah, years ago. Yeah. But I wonder what the lane width is there now that it's been redesigned. We Do should you know? go measure. We should. So ADOT does still support a lot of local government agency projects. So even th there's only a mm -hmm. few cities that are like um, can administer their own projects. So a lot of municipalities can. So ADOT is involved in the process no matter what because right. of the federal funding. So at least so so I guess it's just a well, way I mean, I, that we can expand to include. I, I think those, about yeah. this as a as a Mesa focused mm -hmm. thing too. So yeah, I mean and Mesa, we have a lot of newer neighborhoods that not are going up out in the east, uh, far east part of Mesa too where the city development standards are driving the developers to do certain things. Mm -hmm. And developers are trying, you know, at Eastmark, they want to have a lot of things that they're experimenting with, like curb cuts and things like that, which are currently illegal and not allowed. So Eastmark, you know, DMB and the other developers out there want to try some different stuff, and they're being told no by the city. Yeah, it becomes um, a very difficult thing to manage when a city has a, a bunch of set of standards and somebody wants to deviate and experiment with those standards and then due to the the, the, the liability of all of it, it's like closely monitored and they have to do this progress monitoring and it's a lot of man hours to end up experimenting with these things. But I hope in the, in the long range I think it all pays off because the experiments will prove viable and then it won't necessarily be so arduous the next time. And some of it is just having the wrong standards. So we know Ashto mm. has standards that allow us to do these kind of things and say just adopt those standards, whereas NACTO doesn't. Or do yeah, I have right. that backwards? Yeah, NACTO has standards that allows us to have 
narrower lanes that have been proven across the country that they're safe and effective but we haven't adopted them yet because they're only 10 years old they're too new yeah and, and our lead engineers uh in every city are, are the old they're still old school so right and and in their defense they are trying to maintain a standard and especially in mesa which is 130 square miles and it's a big place and it goes everywhere from stuff that has infrastructure from the 1890s to stuff that has infrastructure from last week so i do really want to talk about the sacred side box section i think we just need to get people to slow down <laughs> and by doing that would be road diets and mm -hmm. other things. I've known of too many accidents this year where people have been injured or passed away relating to traffic accidents. And so I think in general, um, it would be fantastic if ADOT could kind of, or the, you know, Arizona as a state could kind of take the lead and try to try to make call. some significant changes. So we know we're 20 is plenty. Yep. Maybe we just need to keep it complicated. Right. Um, the sacred sidewalk section. So this is the part that, I, again, I was really surprised because he does talk about sidewalk width isn't important. It's a baseline, right? It's, well, he does. He's like, he's like, it doesn't matter. It matters I, whether or not you're protected against cars. So that's interesting you say that. You need to speak louder. Yeah, no, it's interesting you say that because um, I'll walk down a sidewalk that's two feet wide as long as I don't feel like I'm going to get hit by a car on the other side. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, and in some of these um, older communities, like especially on the East Coast, sometimes that's all you can have. But hey, at least I have two feet that I can walk on right. as opposed to nothing, you know, and it's it's designated space. Um, so, yeah, I feel like if, if you can't do a six or eight foot sidewalk, don't say, hey, I'm not going to do a sidewalk. You know, let's do let's be variable and do a more narrow sidewalk. But also in Washington, D.C., they have bike lanes that are the, the width bike lanes that go both like north and south and it's on the same side of the road Cycle it's just as narrow it, it's the same exact width as a normal bike lane here in let's say Tempe or uh, another area so yeah. what's one bike lane to us is two bike lanes in either direction in DC so if they can so make it work other people can make it work they're much more sophisticated than us you just we, lean we, a little bit to the right when you see somebody enough. coming the other way you know um I you don't know, know what the width is for the cycle track that's going into Mesa along Alaska, I don't know. It's probably it's, 10. But, it, yeah, it's not two quite fives. that zero. It's, it's not two sixes. Are we going to have um, Jim next? next? Yep. We're going right. to schedule Jim Hash. All right. Next time we're talking about bikes, and we're going to sure. talk about that. Um, so cars, parked cars, we need 2,000-pound things blocking traffic from walkability to make it do the Yep. $10,000 per parking space in adjacent businesses if an on-street parking spot is moved. Hmm. So if you remove an on-street parking spot, you the adjacent business will lose $10,000 per year in sales. And it's about $10,000 to install it and lasts, what, 10, 12, 20 years with minimal maintenance? Yeah. <laughs> So the thing after that, so downtown Mesa, we had, I don't know if it was a devil's bargain or a bad decision. We have a 10-foot lane. We have no bike lane. And we thought that Sharrows would work. Mm. They don't. Um, just for the mile in the, the historic downtown, we don't have any bike lanes. And so I have heard over and over and over again that we should tear up all of the on-street parking mm -hmm. 
and put in a bike lane. I've and too. We've actually had these comments on Main Street Mesa's Facebook page. And I, I've always been reluctant because I, I feel like, you know, slow enough traffic is okay. We don't have slow enough traffic on Main Street now to make me feel safe on the sidewalk. So, but it was always sort of an uncomfortable thing. But here he talks directly about how stripping a sidewalk of its protection in order to add bike lanes is just as is just sacrificing one form of non-motorized transportation for another. So if you take those parking spots out to replace it with a bike lane, you're sacrificing walkability for bikeability. Right. Whereas what we want is both. And given the, the street network adjacent to Main Street that, that runs parallel with Main Street, so close to Main Street, I don't feel that it, that would be a savvy swap out to swap out the cars so, for the bike lanes. Here's my brilliant idea. On one-way streets, you're allowed by existing standards to have a bike lane on the left-hand side of the street. It's actually mm -hmm. safer because that's where the driving position is on a car. Sure. It takes you out of the door zone. On Main Street, we have, except at intersections, there is a roughly a five-foot buffer in between the light rail alignment, where the concrete for that starts, and the travel lane. So if we can manage the transition for bikes Into the from at intersections to be able to share the lane at the intersection, but to share that space, it takes them out of the door zone, it maintains a full lane of driving and we have a bike lane interesting and all it would take is some striping so you're just saying a narrow bike lane basically five foot yeah it's not that narrow i think bike you'll take we'll take what we can get you know if it's going to be a narrow bikeway we'd run bike lane i, I mean it's five feet than it's five feet actually yeah. narrow that actually does not sound narrow to me no. but i'm not I sure why they wouldn't be doing it i think six feet is the the industry standard, standard um for what except during washington dc yeah um, it's like two feet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so, between between parked cars who might not take up their allotted nine feet and a narrow ten foot travel lane and a narrow bike lane, I think that might be three. You know, some narrowness that that might. I don't know. It, it's I'm just saying. Like, I, I'm it's saying still, the still existing parallel parking. Right? The existing bike lane and using a five-foot buffer space for bike lanes that just gives the bike an excuse to get out of the way, mm. that creates a little bit of safety, it still keeps the cars going slow, because still we want to keep those cars going slow, yeah. so we still have a little of that unpredictability. We could still do 20th plenty on Main Street. But we dropped it to, from 30 to 25, mm. which I'm was sure a step. I'm sure there was a political nightmare to do that. It was actually really easy. <laughs> so, 25 was easy. I, I think 20 was. I understand the opposition to um, to bike lanes. Well, it it was a space consideration on Main Street. Yeah. Because they didn't Mesa didn't want to spend again the extension was right during the downturn. Mm -hmm. Mesa didn't want to spend a dime, and it was fully funded by county and uh, federal taxes if they didn't have to move any curbs. So any curb movement had to be paid for by the city. So they didn't move curbs unless they absolutely had to. Do you think that we could remove the, the signals, the traffic signals from Main Street and downtown 
and go to the stop signs? I think on the first, the two first, First Avenue and First Street, they should be stop signs. There's not enough traffic to make. I sit at those lights all the time. There's Watch no reason. On. No one's passing, and because I apparently can't break rules, <laughs> I sit at those lights for ages. I've sat. I've sat at Main Street's like left turn lane, waiting for Red Arrow forever, and there's nothing going on on the other side. I have seen issues where that. There's so much money that's going into this infrastructure. And if we could just try the stop sign, and then, you know, the stop signs that have the lights on them. Mm. Um, I mean, I think that that's a really simple solution. I know there's a lot of county roads out there where sometimes they're concerned about, you know, stop signs, whereas a stop light has a light and it's going right. to, you know, if area with high accidents but um as far as i know i haven't seen too many of those stop signs with the with the lights on them with maybe the solar power that uh, and bright makes them bright at night so yeah, um, yeah. Oh, one other passing thought that i had when you were talking about the bike lanes in the center is it gets bikes when when you have that and you have a bus route in the same corridor it also gets bikes out of the bus stop lane mm -hmm. too because Buses and bikes travel at the same average speed, mm -hmm. but the buses stop and go, stop and go. So they're always jockeying for position one right. to the other, and it's really, yeah. really annoying for the bicyclists who are then stressed by having to pass around the buses and the buses <laughs> passing around the bicycles between stop to stops. So it's it's a really interesting dilemma. The last about. section that I think that we have to talk about because it's my personal frustration is the big buttons. <laughs> that push buttons senseless yeah. signals i hate them so much especially <laughs> in walkable commercial areas so mill avenue should not have any big buttons downtown phoenix no big buttons and certainly not downtown mesa they make no sense they are stupid they are the wrong solution to a make made up problem i like that he, he mentions that he's had conversations with blind people Yes. And, and uh, their effect with the, the big buttons. That it's literally a hindrance to them. Mm -hmm. Though if they don't have the big button, they don't need the audible signal, which I had never even thought about that. Yeah. I thought that was fascinating. Because they can hear the traffic. Because stops. when traffic stops, yeah. they know that they have a signal. Either they have the annoying buzzing or the, the walk sign is on. The walk sign. Oh, God. Wait, 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 <laughs> wait, 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 wait. wait. Wait, 10 seconds. Wait, you have 10 seconds wait. left. Um, well, no, I, I do think it's very interesting, though, that us as planners here, we're talking about decreasing costs for a variety of projects. So I'm just saying wherever you can save money, I think that sometimes we just need to step back and keep things simple. You know, instead of, um, you know, thinking, oh, we need to completely change this area. We need to add, you know, all these traffic signals that would make it safer. We need to add, 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 add. We need to start taking away. We mm -hmm. need, then that does kind of touch base on the, the, the section of the book we're talking about. But um, I just think sometimes, you know, step back and think, hey, what's what's a simple approach here? And why don't we try the simple approach first? And it also can be the most cost effective. Yeah, right we, we often have a budget-sized solution to a problem when mm. there could be, a, if you don't do anything, it's actually all right. Yeah. Or take something else. Or try, try it the simple way first before you try it the expensive way. And I also want to say that 60 seconds for waiting for a light he says 60 seconds maximum mm. for uh, waiting yeah. for a light is what you should do. 
I all engineers should have that drilled into their head, right? Tattooed on their hand. <laughs> tattooed on their hand. Uh, is there a screensaver? Yeah. Yep, right? <laughs> so also in the summer here in Phoenix, I think it's a safety issue, right? We we it encourages jaywalking yeah, to do that. And it does. Yeah. I don't believe in jaywalking. I, I believe it was a, a, a grand conspiracy. conspiracy but if we are actually trying to keep people out of dangerous roads, which we should, we need to make it easier and more convenient. You're absolutely right. Yeah. And when you're sitting there for 60 seconds on a 106 degree day, you're... They're going to cross the road. You're it's really, you're really desperate for some shade. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I do not want to close out without uh, holding him to task on his question, which I find incredibly lazy because he doesn't explain himself. What American wants to be a pedestrian in Bogota? Now we're back to BRT, but I just want to put that on the record. Next well, book, you need to explain yourself, Jeff Speck. <laughs> I know you're listening. Was it, <laughs> <laughs> was it because of... The you know Bogota used to be one of the most dangerous cities in the world. Yeah, and and, and poor and and the the whole campaign that if the poor can't get around, then the city's not doing the people any justice. And, mm -hmm. and yeah, no, I think he's he was being social justice for a book that's not written for planners. He often takes liberties that assumes knowledge of the reader that shouldn't. Where's Bogota? Bogota. Down south, Georgia. <laughs> yeah. So, Mylene, we didn't let you talk. I did. What? 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 What do you have to add? Um. What's well, note? I think that Phoenix, Mesa, you know, this whole area, the metropolitan area, has has great room for improvement. And the fact that we do have such wide streets, I think, is is something that. That's amazing because now if we actually have the guts to try some of these road diets and to see how these, um, you know, different things work out, we have room to add additional, you know, whether it's a streetcar, trolley, wide bike lanes, pedestrian spaces, we have space for it. It's just about if we're going to actually do it. Um, I think shade is huge. You know, right now we just hit the summer months and uh, I see some shade, but I think we also, we should think about, you know, how, where we put the shade and where it's going to shade certain areas. So maybe if a lot of people are heading to down, you know, a to a certain location, think about how the shade can shade a certain, mm -hmm. you know, side of the road mm -hmm. yeah. for, for the morning and then also for the afternoon. Um, you know, I hate seeing uh, these, some bus stops that have like shade structures that are clear that aren't they're just basically metal structures and they don't really cause much give much shade yeah i think those are solar ovens <laughs> like so so what are we doing here for the pedestrian you know i mean i just think I, I just don't when when we try to make the bus stop so artistic which i i love art but let's also make sure it functions, functions as, as it right. needs to yeah. so yeah keep things simple um you know i definitely approve of you know public outreach getting out there and seeing what ideas the public has i think that that can give planners and engineers um some ideas that they maybe wouldn't have thought of before especially for things in, in their exact neighborhood so yeah. You want planners to go outside and walk in the communities where they work? Excuse me. Just an idea. My cubicle is comfortable. <laughs> it's air conditioned. Yep. Unlike outside. But yeah, good way, ways for people to easily, you know, let the let their municipalities know uh, ideas that they have. Um, I know Tempe has the three one one. 
app, but I haven't used that too much. Just a rat on your neighbor. Uh, no, that's what I've heard. <laughs> it's all like rat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I heard that iMesa is um, under there's, construction. There's to, some to really relaunch. simple things, you know, paint some crosswalks. Just saying it's paint, mm -hmm. you know. I mean, there's simple things that you can do. It's expensive paint that can really. You have um, to use thermal paint, and it's very at least expensive. If the city does it themselves; they don't have to go through the NEPA process. And get environmental <laughs> clearance. Just do it. Just do it. So. Spoken like an environmental planner. Is that all we have for today? I'd like to thank everybody for being patient enough to listen to all that. But uh, so that is what we have for today. So join us on Facebook or Tumblr at Main Street Mesa. Email us your comments to mainstmesa at gmail.com. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't I forget do to rate us. Rate us. I do Stitcher. I use Podcast Addict. We both like to thank you. We'd like to thank Eileen. Thank you <laughs> for putting up with us. This has been great. Thanks for having me. Do you have any way for people to maybe uh, get in touch with you if you'd like? Maybe you have a Twitter handle or something? Are you on Good the folks? interwebs? Twitter. Uh, can the internet? I have one Can somewhere. the internet stalk you? <laughs> uh, but um, let's see here. Let's say so, somebody falls in love with you and wants to get well, you a job. Anybody can find me on LinkedIn. Um, it's Eileen Bo Baden. And um, yeah. Adding you now. Very yeah. Cool. So we are going to reach out to Jim Hash. He is the bike ped specialist. And I want Anthony to be there too because he oh. lives downtown. He rides his bike all the time. He's working on his planning degree. We've got to support the planners. Poor, poor planners. And he's probably ridden his bike downtown Mesa more than a lot of other people. That I like to ride my bike to downtown Mesa. I'm within a bike shed in downtown Mesa. I, I enjoy that. Yeah, we've, we've gone with our kids a number of times. One mile. Some really cool bike rides. So That's right. You should drink and have bikes with us. Sometime. Beer. <laughs> Beer. So, make sure you join us next time. We'll be covering pages 189 through 222 in the 2013 First Paperback Edition, if you have the book. And step six and step seven are your targets. Welcome the bikes and shape the streets. Our theme music is written by Philip Buckman, performed by the Sweaty Palm Trees, and produced and recorded by David Mirsch. Some who are fortunate enough to have communities still do fight to keep them, but they have seldom prevailed. While people possess a community, they usually understand that they can't afford to lose it. But after it is lost, gradually, even the memory of what was lost is, is lost. Thank you, depressing Jane Jacobs. <laughs> and you can come see her at uh, Citizen Jane.